We have reached the second part of Where Are You Going, which was published as the book Great Patient One. The chapters are grouped into lunar cycles, each with their own maps. This is the start of the fourth lunar cycle, and there is a link to a new map for download with this chapter. Great Patient One Chapter 15 Read by Achan Sutito and Nick Scott Achan and Nick have left Bodgaya for Calcutta to get replacements for their stolen passports, visas and travellers' checks in the hope that they can continue their walking pilgrimage. It was night time in Gaia, for things were still bustling. In the lighted shop fronts, father, mother and a kid or two were still steadily at work, yet with bright and smiling faces. Time of day doesn't mean that much in India. What really counts is what you belong to. A home is optional, but family, clan, caste, often entailing a traditional occupation, is something you don't leave. In fact, you can belong to it for countless incarnations. This is the ethos that binds the India together, is the hard wiring of duty, value, divine law, dharma. Tonight, the web and weave looked happy enough, or maybe people just found the sight of us two comical, me in tattered brown robes, Nick with a scruffy blanket thrown round him and as Nick moved into negotiations over purchasing the sticky sesame sweets that they were concocting, there were the usual questions as to how we fitted in. Where did we come from? And where were we going? Well, pilgrimage was our dharma, and today this meant walking from Bodhgaya to Gaya to catch the evening train to Calcutta for the official business that our getting mugged two weeks previously necessitated. Thus our current duty was to report to the Deputy High Commission, fill in forms for new passports, reapply for visas and visit the bank and the airline to negotiate for travellers' checks and airline tickets. As Westerners, bits of official paper and noted numbers meant that wherever the two of us wandered there was still a connection, meaning a place on the planet. I shouldn't think the families here had any of that. Their dharma. In fact, the role and occupation of every family in this district was to pummel and beat a paste of ground-up seeds and sugar against the wall until it cohered into lumpy cakes. Well, a bag of these would be something for a long train ride to Calcutta. It left at 9.30 in the evening and probably wouldn't get in until 7 or 8 in the morning. We were travelling light, at least having all our belongings stolen had that advantage, and we'd even left behind the clothes and bits of travellers' gear that the Western Buddhist community in Bodhgaya had given us when they'd seen our plight. After two months in India, one learns to adapt to life on the move, and also to what moving around entails. After the struggle through the thronging crowds at Gaya Station, 
It was no longer surprising to find out that the train we were booked for was running four hours late. So we waited in the dull resignation that is the norm for seasoned travellers here on the cold, dark platform among the bodies wrapped in old blankets and newspaper. It was night. It always seems to be night in Indian railway stations, as if darkness, cold, fatigue, boredom and dirt are inseparable features of their world. So we wait, unable to afford the ten rupees each to get in the waiting room. We wait, energy falling like the thermometer, beholding out against sliding into the dirt of the floor by squatting on scraps of paper and propping ourselves against the wall. To lessen the discomfort, I descended as near as possible to the oblivion of sleep. Once or twice we get up to wander round the platforms and hang out with the chaiwala who lived here in this world of shades contentedly making tea. He offered an experienced guest, Oh, Calcutta train, no, this will not arrive before two o'clock morning time. Somewhere near three o'clock in the morning, the express pulled in, five and a half hours late. This meant we wouldn't arrive in Calcutta before midday, which made the whole game plan a bit tight. Official business is closed in late afternoon, but before noon we needed to get something to eat to fit in with my training rules, and finding a place and getting around in the teeming jumble of the city was no joke. Calcutta was the city of Mother Kali goddess of chaos. I felt my nerves tighten, but clench and rage all you like. In India, there's nothing you can do but give up and wait. And wait. The cold night opened into a long grey morning with the train stopping at every station and at nowheres between stations and generally showing every sign of reluctance to reach its destination. Hurry, hurry, we're late, says the mind. But the train dawdled, slowed, sighed to long stops in the middle of the lush greenery of West Bengal, and it seemed to be only the almost imperceptible downhill gradient of the Ganges plain that kept it rolling, eventually, to a hissing halt in Howrah Station, Calcutta. But by now, we were late, late, late. By now it was 3.15pm. The Deputy High Commission, somewhere in the centre of Calcutta, somewhere on the other side of the Howrah Bridge, the single bridge linking Calcutta on the east bank of the Hooghly River to the rest of India, somewhere through archaic arteries choked with cars, rickshaws, ox carts, and people on two, one or no legs, Somewhere on the other side of impossibility, the Deputy High Commission would be closing at four o'clock precisely. In an air-conditioned establishment, officials in suits would glance up at a sedately ticking clock, sigh, shuffle their papers, lock their offices, and as we were seething and struggling through the labyrinth of the city, bid the doorman and the guards good evening and go. Where to? Where would such beings lodge in Kali's city? But as a goddess, Kali has her grandeur. The mutilated, the comic, 
the benevolent, the artistic, the utterly homelessly poor, all find a place in Calcutta. And she has her surprises. Today, she was allowing us a miracle. Nick barged us through the station out to the taxi rank. British High Commission! No, 500 rupees. 50 rupees, OK? No. OK, 100 rupees. Bonte, get the bags in the boot. And we leapt over the hoogly and through the hordes to arrive at the gates and high white wall of the Deputy High Commission at 3.55 on the dot. Armed Gurkhas at the gate. A tranquil garden and cool, clean rooms. Order like a refreshing pool. Her Majesty's servants were calm, efficient but not officious, and with friendly murmurs and quiet attention showed not the slightest indication that it was at all unusual to be dealing with one of their own countrymen with a shaven head and robes, while the other resembled an effigy of Guy Fawkes. They get to work on it straight away, and should get things cleared in a few days. A cool, clear dharma. Ah, home again. As we went out onto the streets of the city in a post-adrenaline vacuity, the intense psychodrama of inner India abated, and a spicy, half-familiar world came flooding in. Park Street, Free School Street, Lenin Sarai, Chetney Chowk, and Chittaranjan Avenue, the street life, the shops, the buses, the old smoke buildings, all were of the style and bearing of the London of my childhood. When I was a boy, wandering round the streets of London was like this. Being overwhelmed was just part of the magic. And in those days, people were friendly, like these people. A shopkeeper took the trouble to find the phone number of the Bengali Buddhist Association, call them up and get exact directions to the Vihara. Surprise, surprise. I didn't expect Calcutta to remind me of childhood innocence. Nick Scott I'd been through the business of getting travellers' checks and passports replaced once before in India with a friend in New Delhi and knew how frustrating it could be. I knew there were many hurdles yet to be overcome and any one of them could prove impossible. But that wasn't the only reason I approached Calcutta with such determination. Ensuring we got to the British High Commission before it closed on the day we arrived, and then setting off first thing next morning from the Bengali Buddhist Association to the Indian bank that had acted as the local agents for our checks. In Calcutta, I had the opportunity to take charge of my life again. Looking back, I can see that all that determination to get things sorted was really about reasserting myself, becoming the efficient organiser, and leaving behind that painful sense of a world out of control that had been our walk across the Ganges plain, culminating in that awful robbery and its aftermath.
I wanted to get back to a role where I felt at home. The bank was in the heart of the commercial district, the part built by the British when Calcutta was still the capital of the Raj. It had long since succumbed to India, though. The once splendid Victorian stone buildings were blackened with grime. Their eaves, balconies and edges were encrusted with a thick layer of bird droppings and at their feet swarmed the human population of the most crowded city in the world. On one side of the once grand portaled bank entrance was a rickety tea stall made of bamboo and plastic sheeting. On the other was one of the many families who live on Calcutta's streets. They were just lying there on a few bits of dirty cloth, each looking more like a bundle of rags than a human being. Inside the bank, things were more orderly. There were rows of desks with studious-looking Bengali clerks and grilled counters with cashiers dealing with customers. I was directed to the foreign exchange desk, where, to my surprise, they proved to be both efficient and helpful. Although the clerk had never refunded travellers' cheques before, he had all the relevant instructions to hand, and I left the bank only an hour later, having been told to come back in a few days to see how they got on. But it all seemed far too good to be true. Although I'd been assured when buying the cheques in England that if they were stolen, they would be replaced within one day of being reported, I knew that nothing ever happened that quickly in India. That was something that had been demonstrated to me in Calcutta 18 years before. My mother had sent me a parcel for Christmas. Although I'd warned her against sending anything to India by seamail, she had checked with her local post office, who had looked up India in their booklet, and found that seamail took three months. So my mother had sent the parcel in August, which was ample time, according to the conventions in England, for it to get to me for Christmas. Of course it hadn't arrived by then, and even by the time I was about to leave India, six months later. So I'd gone to the general post office to explain my problem. They were pessimistic, but sent me to a tall old building near the docks, with a Bengali clerk sitting behind a desk inside the entrance. Without much hope, I explained what I was after. Your problems are over. Your puzzle is here. Great, can I have it? Oh, I am sorry. <laughs> this is not possible. But rest assured, certainly it is here. Upstairs there are so many mailbags, and your puzzle is quite definitely in one of them. It transpired that so many meant thousands of mailbags, and that they opened and sorted about fifty a day. So you must be patient. Eventually, oh, we will certainly find it. But I was leaving India the next day and didn't get to see that parcel until it turned up at my mother's house two years later. The local postman was holding it at arm's length in a plastic bag. She had included Christmas cake and chocolates, and the parcel was now dripping with weevils and maggots and stinking to high heaven. The only thing salvageable were two paperback books, and they were badly stained and nibbled at the edges. So I'd learnt that things can take much longer in India than they reckon in England. 
and that's why from the bank I went to the same general post office to send a telegram to Ajahn Suchita's monastery to ask them to help by contacting the bank in England. The general post office hadn't changed at all since I'd last been there. There were still the same old wooden fittings with barred grills at each of the counters, and above each of them a little red and white enamel sign. Beneath the one marked Telegrams, a clerk received my message. Beyond him was an ancient metal machine for sending the telegrams with various knobs and sockets and a manual keyboard. It must have been installed, like all the other fittings, by the British, and been there ever since. I wondered if anything was ever replaced in India. The Vihara of the Bengali Buddhist Association was connected to the life of the city. The street it stood in was named after it. Bengal had Buddhists, and a large and well-established building, four stories high, was there to serve them, and more than them. Currently, the Vihara was sheltering a crowd of Thai fishermen, captured by the Indian authorities in the Andaman Islands and due to be repatriated, and two bhikkhus from Bangladesh, Venerables Bhikkhu Bhimal and Agavangsa Mahatera. We'd come across Bhikkhu Bhimal a few blocks away from the Vihara, his broad face bursting into a smile of recognition. He remembered me from his visits to Amrawadi, where he'd come to publicise the atrocities being committed against Buddhist hill tribes of the Chittagong hill tracts. Now he was here, finding a niche, and creating a school to help the children whose parents had managed to get out of Bangladesh. Since partition, Calcutta had received wave after wave of immigrants from Bangladesh, the eastern portion of what had originally been the province of Bengal. The Chittagong hill tracks had been a tribal territory wedged up against the Burmese border. The people there were not Bengalis, they were Chakmas, looking more like Burmese or Nepalese. Moreover, they were Buddhist, like some of the people of Assam. Perhaps they represented traces of the last Indian Buddhist empire, the Pala dynasty of the 8th and 9th centuries. Although the hill tracks had never been part of Bengal, the region was a victim of the map-maker's convenience when it was carved up between Burma, India and East Pakistan. Of course, at the time of the carve-up, the people's rights to their land and their culture were guaranteed. But all that was easily ignored. The demographic pressure from the plains and the difference of religion justified land-grabbing, military intrusion, war against the local resistance, the burning of villages and massacres. Kali City had received those who escaped. The Vihara itself was built in a square around a central courtyard. One edge of the square was lower than the rest and constituted the temple. The rest was accommodation and offices. The block that we were given a room in was deluxe accommodation for visiting dignitaries. It had been built quite recently. A dedication plaque proudly proclaimed that the foundation stone 
had been laid by Campbell Lama of Buryat. That's a Russian republic adjacent to Mongolia. With the building itself being inaugurated by Motoyuki Nagunuma of Risho Kosai Kai. Buryat? And Motoyuki sounded Japanese. What was the connection? And whose was the outline in wrought iron that decorated every window pane? It looked like a Tibetan monk of some kind. And so it was. It turned out that the block was dedicated to the renowned Mahayana scholar Atisha. His work is not studied in Theravada, and nobody at the Vihara had known of his existence until a few years ago, when an invitation had come from Mongolia to attend the thousandth anniversary of the sage's birth. On reading the invitation, the association discovered that Atisha, who had spent a major chunk of his teaching life in Tibet, creating a systematic approach to the Tantric and Mahayana teachings, was in fact a Bengali. So they felt duty-bound to go to the commemoration. Because of that meeting, Japanese sponsorship had come their way. And so they built the residence block. Hence, Atisha's image decorated every window, honoured, but still not studied, by his own countrymen at last, the sage had finally returned to his native land. Our host, Venerable Dhammapal, was as easy to sit around as a glowing hearth on a winter's night. He was most concerned for our welfare. This in itself was not so unusual in India. What was different about him was his ability to size up the situation in practical terms provide what was needed and not overload us with the tedium of what was not needed. And he was interested in what we were doing. We'd have meals or tea with him, and after dealing with the practicalities, occasionally interrupted by his attending to sundry inquiries and phone calls, enjoy his lively conversation. He had spent a long time in the order, having become a Sumnera just before the Second World War, and a bhikkhu, in 1945. That had been in Cox's Bazaar in the south of what is now Bangladesh. However, anticipating difficulties in being a Buddhist monk in a Muslim country, he had come to Calcutta in 1948. Being an immigrant from southern Bengal hadn't been easy, but he didn't go into details. Then between 1962 and 1985, there had been a lot of internal wrangling within the Bengali Buddhist Association. The problem is all Indians want to be their own boss. Indians just want to sit in the big chair and feel important. Hey, look at me! But things had settled now. He had loyal and energetic assistants and quite a dynamic vihara that was connecting to people, supporting schools, a clinic and Dhamma teaching. It really was an association a cooperative, and that was unusual. For Venerable Dhammapal, one of the most challenging jobs was being chair of the All India Bhikkhu Sangha, which was an attempt to create a self-regulating order of bhikkhus with standards of training, cooperation and organisation. This was quite an aspiration. As we've seen in Kushinagar, men would become bhikkhus with little interest in undertaking the training, Many of them wandered off on their own within the few weeks of ordination to make a living by begging or performing rituals. 
Even here, in the longest established vihara in India, it was founded in 1892, with good support and vitality, it was difficult to find any bhikkhu who would help to serve. Venerable Dhammapal was very impressed to hear of the number of monks and nuns training together in Britain, working for years to build residential centres out of dilapidated buildings, as well as meditating and teaching Dhamma. His assistants here were all lay people. I have had to struggle my entire life, he commented more with a sense of affirmation than self-pity. He obviously had what it took to live with some integrity, and it diminished neither his energy, nor his compassion, nor his humour. There was another expatriate from the former East Bengal that we particularly wanted to see, Anagarika Munindra, the renowned meditation teacher. On our second day in Calcutta, we made a small pilgrimage to the headquarters of the Mahabodhi Society in College Square, where he was living. Nick remembered him from his first visit to India in the early 70s in Bodhagaya, then, as always, clad in long, loose white shirt and white baggy pants, and teaching with his gentle warmth. For me, the memory was of Anagarika Munindra's visit to the Hampstead Buddhist Vihara, in 1978. I had just arrived, and after my three years' solitary incarceration in the Thai monastery, being back in my birthplace and having people to talk to was pleasantly stimulating. For the other bhikkhus, who were used to living in the forest, life cooped up in a London townhouse felt dour. The place had a stale mood, like a neglected menagerie. Then Anagarika Munindra turned up, as bright as the song of some gorgeous tropical bird, and everybody began to cheer up under the influence of his warmth. Twelve years later, it was we who were the migrants, tapping on the door of his little room in the Mahabodhi Society headquarters. Still immaculately clad, he looked more time-worn now, and was just getting over an illness. But to see us was nothing but a delight. His little nest was plain, a bed with a mosquito net over it, and a straight-backed chair were the only furnishings, a thermos flask, paraffin stove, and simple cooking utensils, the only accoutrements. After he had greeted us and had settled me in the chair, he continued shucking peas into a saucepan as he talked. For many years he had been an Anagarika, one who was left home and avowed celibacy in order to follow a spiritual path. He had been a bhikkhu once and spent ten years in Burma, but he disrobed as it was too difficult to get by in India. As an Anagarika, being allowed to use money and cook for himself, he had more freedom to travel and teach. At one time he had been superintendent of the Mahabodhi temple in Bodhagaya and established the International Meditation Centre there. He then travelled to the West, bringing practical meditation instruction across with his gentleness and his Bengali charm. But now, at the age of 75, he had returned to his native Bengal to stay at the Mahabodhi Society in Calcutta and teach retreats there. He offered us some of his peas and some fruit and he even had a copy of Forrest Sanger newsletter 
the quarterly periodical from Amrawati that I used to edit. I roved through it hungrily, reading the familiar names and the events in a distant homeland, with the typographical errors leaping off the page. Home was not so much a place, it was the compound of familiarity, nagging concerns, partial achievements, plans, everything that added density and importance to one's existence. Now it seemed like the glittering bric-a-brac in a magpie's nest. Home, a set-up that you could call your own, in which to create an apparent order out of chaos. A place where you could plan your life. All seemed so reasonable. To be truly homeless pitted you against your very identity. No wonder even the old meditation teacher, having chosen a role and an occupation, eventually gravitated back to his birthplace. We were doing much the same, going back to our nice little room in the Vihara, with a door that you could shut, a room free from intrusion. We could go out and look at Calcutta, do our errands, and then get back to the Vihara and close that door. Around that door, the myth of separateness and then of having other places to go out to could develop. Behind the door, you could assume a different role at will. You could cut off the input and be left to yourself. The effect was quite dramatic after the raw exposure of wandering across the plains of Bihar. Life was now something I could witness and withdraw from at will. I began to feel quite happy. Nick Scott Venerable Dhammapal offered the temple car and driver to get us about Calcutta. It was an ambassador. It had to be, really, as nearly every car in India was an ambassador then. They were made in India to the design of a British 1957 Morris Oxford, and had been since the 1960s. As they'd never been updated, all that varied was how old they were. India had found the archetypical car and stuck with it. The temple's archetype was kept in the compound where the driver tended it with loving care, washing it every day and always poking about under the bonnet. Being driven around Calcutta was very grand, but the congested streets of the city centre made it a bit pointless for local errands. So we only used it for the two trips we made together to the embassies in the suburbs. The rest of the time I'd usually walk. I really enjoyed wandering through Calcutta. The temple was not that far, only half an hour from most of the places I needed to visit, and I developed a number of standard routes cutting through the side streets and down different thoroughfares. Each section of the city had its own character, which would change with every corner I turned. Perhaps it was a commercial area, specialising in certain goods. All the shops and the street hawkers dealing in brassware, or marble, or vehicle parts. 
while workers made the things for sale in the back, or repaired the cars or motorbikes in the street. If the area was residential, its character would be defined by the residents. Everyone would be Muslims, with long shirts, baggy trousers, and those beards without moustaches that look stuck on. Or they would be from somewhere like Bihar or Assam, and wearing their distinctive local costume. Then there were the different public buildings with their attendant trades. The rows of scribes and typists squatting over their manual typewriters on the pavement outside the law courts. The brokers sitting in open-sided cubicles piled three high, shouting their offers next to the stock exchange. And outside each of the good hotels, the beggars, shoeshine boys and touts who would all pester me as I went by. Each district had one thing in common, though. It would be seething with humanity. If I had further to go, I'd take one of the buses or trams. One has to develop new skills to travel on public transport in Calcutta. All the vehicles are constantly packed full and usually only stop to let people off. To get on, you make a run at a bus when it is forced to stop, at traffic lights or when people are getting off, and cram yourself onto the running board, accepting the helping hands that come out of the squash of people already there. You then squeeze your way further in and stand in a packed mass until you arrive at your destination. Occasionally you meet a conductor to pay your fare to. Only once did I manage to get a seat. The trams are much the same as the buses, except for while the buses run out to the suburbs, down wide avenues, the trams run through the centre of the city, along the most crowded of streets. There they are forced to go so slowly that everyone gets on and off, or attempts to, while they are moving, and they dispense entirely with the need for stops. These ancient grey battered metal boxes, which long ago lost their paintwork, lurch and squeal as they try to make their way, seemingly against the tide. They're at a perpetual disadvantage, unable to leave their rails to wind their way around obstacles, as everything else on the street can. The lorries, the cars, the distinctive yellow and black taxis, which are ambassadors, of course, driven by Sikhs the rickshaws and carts pulled by sweating coolies, animals and cycle rickshaws being banned in the city centre to cut down on congestion, and the pedestrians, who are forced to walk on the road as the pavement is filled with the shops that have spilled out on them and by the hawkers lining the curbs. To begin with, my trips were just to the bank to see if our money had arrived. When, only after three days, to my surprise, it had, I could start with a growing sense of hope to assemble our other needs for the pilgrimage. I went to the airline offices to replace our tickets and to various shops to buy things like a travel clock, straps for my bag and new maps. But so far, we still had no passports and no visas. Once we had money, I could also buy some of the things that I'd been passing and desiring for the past week. 
little treats like a Time magazine, some local sweets, and a book from the second-hand bookstore for Ajahn Suchito. We'd browse there together one afternoon, and I knew he wanted to read Geoffrey Morehouse's book on Calcutta. Our money was tight now, though, and I had to be very careful. We'd come to India with the bare minimum, and even though the traveller's cheques were now replaced, there was still the cash we'd lost, and the charges for replacing passports, visas and air tickets that had to be paid, so that we were now going to be very poor for the rest of the journey. However, there was one other thing that I was finding it hard to resist buying. In one of the antique shops near to the big hotels, most of the window was filled with large bronze and ivory figures. But down at the front, sitting on its own in one corner, was a small and slightly wonky-looking metal Buddha Rupa. The shopkeeper told me it was Cambodian and 200 years old. I realised it being Calcutta that this may not be true, but it seemed a strange coincidence that the one Ajahn Suchito had been carrying before the robbery had also been 200 years old, and a gift from the chairman of the Cambodia Trust. Furthermore, this Rupa's rather sad and slightly beaten-up look seemed so suitable for Ajahn Suchito. I'd stopped to look at it whenever I went by, but if I bought it, it would now cost two weeks' worth of our remaining money. Achan Suchito Safe in my nest, I got into the book on Calcutta that Nick had bought me. Somewhere in this urban mass, 300 years ago, had stood Calicutta, a village dedicated to Kali. Then the English had come, the merchants of the East India Company, and owing to the favours of the emperors Shah Jahan and Aurangzeb, settled on this swampy riverbank. Cunning traders, more or less compelled by the company's low wages to underhanded dealing, they added warehouses and a fort to the village. Poor housing grew up for the employees, and Calcutta was born. The company siphoned off the wealth of Bengal through Calcutta. Kali's town became a great trading city. After the mutiny in 1857 and the abolition of the company, having been married to the empire, she became the capital of British India, the Viceroy's seat, a city second only to London in the empire and ruled by a virtual monarch. Bakali's dharma is destruction. She had celebrated the death of the Raj here, and still here in this place of the Asiatic Society and Rabindranath Tagore, with most violent Hindu-Muslim riots after independence, the Naxalite Maoist terrorist attacks on landowners, the Bangladesh War of Independence, and always wave after wave of refugees, more than a million homeless immigrants sluicing down 
uncontainable as the May monsoons. The rising tide of destitute humans carried with it an uncontrollable flood of sewage and disease. It was a city of great warmth, grandeur, squalor and violence, with a seemingly inexhaustible appetite for human misery, and somehow accepting, even embracing it all. Reading about India and seeing it in historical perspective had the effect of granting me a kind of psychological advantage over it. A city built by men, Englishmen at that. Of course, we were just skimming like privileged boatmen across its surface and able to dip into some of its pleasant backwaters during our excursions. While Nick went around the city on errands, I spent a few hours in the library of the British Council reading newspapers for no good reason except to soak up the atmosphere. Not just the air conditioning and the comfortable chairs, but the whole Western ethic that allows you to stand back from circumstances, choose what you wish to attend to, generally something refined or stimulating, and drift in that at your leisure. Ah, the privilege of contemplating the agonies of the world from a place of security and analysis. The at-home feeling was attractive, but strange, dishonest even, like stealing apples. I wondered how long I would get away with it before the owner of the garden turned up. With some misgivings, I picked up the diary habit again. In Bordegai, I had scribbled down the briefest day-to-day outline of the pilgrimage, just one line as to replace the copious notes that had disappeared with the robbery, and such names and fragments that I could remember. Meeting Sister Tanissera there had reminded me of my connections, responsibilities even, to the Sangha, and the promise to keep a record. In Kilcutta, Nick purchased a new diary, a tiny two-volume Hindi-English dictionary, and some maps. So, our pilgrim's raft was set afloat again, complete with navigation equipment and log. Order was looming. The final impudence was the Chinese restaurant. On a long sortie, we went into a restaurant for a meal. By Western standards, it was nothing special, but in terms of Pilgrim's Dharma, the place was a betrayal. Neat tables with clean white tablecloths and chairs set around them, wallpaper on the walls, and a waiter who you didn't have to hunt down, complete with menus. Gleaming cutlery was neatly lined up to attend the chairs, and the centre of the crisp white tablecloth was picked out with a deep crimson rose. I ate hot chopped suey with some kind of sauce on it and washed it down with glasses of water from the sparkling carafe on the table. The water. Of course, the water. It's always the casual bite on the proffered fruit or the complacent sip from the poisoned chalice. Nick didn't drink any, so I alone received the goddess's revenge a mild one by her standards. Most of the third night in Calcutta I was in the lavatory adjoining our room having my innards wrung out. It was a kind of purgation. 
where there's no solid or liquid matter that can be squeezed out of either end of your body and the retching is about to throw your eyeballs down the hole. You know it's your controlling mind she's after. Out came the tablecloth and the rose and the armchairs in the library and Geoffrey Morehouse's book and the newspaper reports about other places. Repent, pilgrim. Get back to nowhere. Down the hall went London and the Deputy High Commissioner in Amrawadi, every last stolen apple of security. There's something reassuringly simple about Carly. She doesn't confuse you with stuff like justice, an inscrutable divine plan and loving you despite it all. She's very straight. You, as a three-dimensional being with a past, having interesting qualities and friends and all that solid junk, are here to be destroyed. She takes a personal interest in it. Simple. That's my kind of goddess. I became fond of that room after a few hours. You could let go with complete ease. It was by far the best lavatory we had come across. Clean, with a tiled floor, a flush toilet, taps that worked, and a door that closed. As I lay sweating and shuddering on the cool floor between spasms, gentle waves of gratitude to Atisha shimmered through my heaving fog. I was in the right place. Chaos creates its own order. Nick Scott My passport was replaced within a week and the consulate said Asun Suchitos would follow the next day. It really was starting to seem that our pilgrimage might get underway again. Getting my Nepalese visa replaced also proved no problem. At the embassy on a street in the better suburbs of Calcutta, the small smiling men of Nepal were content with a letter from our Deputy High Commission, embossed with an imposing gold British crown, saying our passports had been stolen and would they be so kind as to replace the visas. Mine was done in less than a day. But there were still our Indian visas to be replaced. To get these, I had to go to the Indian police section dealing with the immigrants. This was based in an old rambling colonial house, also in the suburbs, and was filled with a chaotic assortment of desks, both covered and surrounded with enormous piles of official papers. The place had a foreboding listlessness about it, with several dejected-looking Westerners already waiting to have their visas renewed. The visas were the responsibility of a big and surprisingly jovial police officer ensconced behind a desk so piled with papers that when it was finally my turn to sit opposite him, I could see him only from the lapels up. He explained that replacing the visas would take a while, as he would have to contact New Delhi. So I asked how long. Three weeks, maybe four. <laughs> These jabs can take their time. We were finally stuck. We might have everything else, but we also needed the visas to get out of the country. I asked what could I do. He just shrugged and looked helpless. 
I tried a few suggestions, but none of them were any good. Each just made the policeman lose more of his good humour. As I got up to leave, my heart sinking at the idea of many weeks coming to this office to inquire about our visas, I had another idea. Could I get our visas replaced in Benares when we got there? He visibly perked up. Oh, wait, not. <laughs> so that is what we decided to do. I didn't quite trust that answer. But I was willing to risk it, even though I'd been warned by one of the waiting Westerners that if we turned up at the Nepal border without our visas, they would never let us out, but send us instead to New Delhi. This way, at least, we could get on with the pilgrimage. So we decided that I would wait on in Calcutta to collect Ajahn Suchito's Nepalese visa while he returned to Bugaya. The Indian visas would just have to wait. Achan Suchito Being laid out with sickness had a peaceful domesticity to it. Nothing much to do. A little sewing, perhaps? So, when I made it back into the bedroom, between dozing and vomiting, I started working on a sitting cloth to squat on when we got back to country life. The one I brought from England had disappeared one dawn on the road. The one I'd subsequently made from nylon had been stolen. The homespun cloth that Nick bought in Calcutta's Cardi Emporium was as earthy as India. It felt right at last. I cut it up as best as I could with tiny nail scissors and cobbled the strips together with wavering stitches. Bunte had special food set up to me and arranged for me to visit the Vihara's free clinic when I was strong enough to stand up. The next day it was his turn, laid up nursing a tooth extraction. My stomach had settled by then, and when he mentioned that we were supposed to go to teach a school in a Buddhist suburb called Gautampur in the afternoon, it seemed like a golden opportunity to respond with some of the kindness he had showed us. Nick and I would go in his place. The car would take us with another monk to help out. After that we would return to the Vihara, and I would take the train back to Gaia while Nick stayed on to conclude our business in Calcutta. I was looking forward to attending Christopher Titmus's meditation retreat in the Thai temple. The retreat was due to begin on the next evening, and it would be a courtesy to the resident monks to spend a day with them before the retreat began. It was also a treat to myself to be in a situation that I was familiar with. The visit to the school was a kind of prelude, a chance to be a Buddhist monk teaching Dharma to Buddhists. The Gotampur assembly of young teenagers was rapt and responsive. They all knew their Buddhist catechisms, and at the end of the lesson they all proffered their exercise books for our autographs. Then one of the oldest girls gave a speech. To express our deep gratitude for your profound teachings and esteemed presence, and we humbly wish that you will honour us with a visitation in the future. One of the teachers escorted us round the village. The sun was shining. We were carrying flowers from the children. And Buddhist Bengal seemed such a haven for my identity. Fortunately, I couldn't hang on to it.
because then it was back to Bihar as an estranged wanderer on another long train ride on another long cold night. Nick went with me to Howrah and seeing me off pressed the small bar of plain chocolate into my hand. My guts grumbled and rolled menacingly. I unswung a sleeping platform and took a position for the night. No passport, no visa, no money, just a small shoulder bag with a toothbrush, a diary I wasn't up to writing in, a book I didn't want to read, a little bar of chocolate in my hand that I didn't feel inclined to eat. The stale, half-lit atmosphere muttered to whatever grumbled inside me as, occasionally chanting the three refuges for comfort, I let the darkness meet and merge with my own. Dawn. Love for all, great and small, said the sign on the platform somewhere as we were nearing Gaia. Oh well, time to move. I got up, gingerly lowered myself, guts in hand, from the carriage and made my way as best I could via the footbridge across the tracks towards the exit. On the platform as I descended, there was Sister Tanisra and Nada waiting for the train to Varanasi, which had been fittingly delayed. Their faces paled at seeing me. They were going home. It wasn't a time for a lot of dialogue. I fumbled at putting a few words together. They clucked and bustled around, getting me back to Bodhagaya. Outside the station were the rickshaw drivers. I didn't want a rickshaw, but I gave up. Nada was explaining to the rickshaw waller as she placed rupee bills in his hand. This is to take the monk to the bus to Bodhagaya. Okay? This is rupees for the bus ticket. Okay? This is bakshish for you. Okay? He had an unmoving expression. You understand? Okay. Gotcha. He was going to rip her off. That was obvious. Still, I had my work cut out, keeping my guts under control. I dumped myself in the back of the rickshaw and stayed centred. After a while, we came across a bus parked half on the pavement, half in the road. The rickshaw wallace stopped, but I had enough savvy to stay close by him as we went to the bus. The tyre on one of the back wheels was off. It was just the driver and his assistant standing around. Bodegayo, okay, said my rickshaw driver and put my bag inside the bus making to leave. Not so fast. This bus wasn't going anywhere. And what about the fare? I caught his hand and snarled at him as I snatched the money out of it. He looked surly, but thought better of it and cycled off. Bodgaya? Bodhagaya? I waggled the words and a few rupee bills at the pair by the back wheel. They shrugged. A scooter taxi turned up. They piled me in the back among some packets of sliced bread, took the rupees out of my hand, and we drove off. India. Home again.
Nick Scott. This was the first time we'd been apart for more than a few hours since we came to India, and it felt like I had weekend leave from some institution of confinement. I had little money to spend, and there wasn't really much I particularly wanted to do, but still I felt really excited. For months we'd been more together than a married couple. We might not have slept in the same bed, but we had always slept in the same room or on the same bit of ground, and we had spent nearly every day entirely together. It was as if we were in some kind of surreal three-legged race, strapped to a partner with a different length of stride. Being English and male, we hadn't even discussed it, just struggled along. So it felt great to be able to go off and do whatever I wanted to do, to be me again. I gave up pujas and meditation, and in the evening sat with my feet up drinking tea with milk in it and reading newspapers, or poring over the new maps I had, and I bought myself a few treats to have in the morning, like a slice of chocolate cake from the baker's I'd been eyeing for days. I'd got the maps just before Ajahn Suchito left. I'd been to all the bookshops and marketplaces, but only found cheap crude ones that would be of little use to us. I longed for something as detailed and reliable as the copies of the old 1940s maps that the robbers had chopped up like salami. In one of the bookshops, I fondly showed the few remnants I still had to the manager, not so much with any hope of getting them replaced, but to let him see why I was not happy with the map he was offering me. Then you must go to the office of the Surveyor General. It is here in Tokata. I should have known that if the British had set something up, it would still be here somewhere. The offices were behind a high wall that ran the full length of a street, not that far from the bookshop. Two soldiers guarded the gateway, where a clerk issued me a chitty. I then crossed a compound to a large Victorian building, climbed a flight of stone steps, and went in through the open double doors. Just inside, a very small sign in English said, Map Sales, and an arrow pointed to an office with another clerk behind a wide table who was dealing with just one customer. He was unrolling maps just like the ones I'd copied in England. I got all the maps I needed from that office, except for the one for the area adjacent to the Nepalese border, which was marked on the catalogue Military Secret. They were more recent additions than the ones I'd had copied in England. Some had been updated only a few years before, and they were in colour. But what I found amazing was that the maps in the marketplace were nowhere near as good as these and were more expensive, but they were all that most people in India knew about. That office was one of only four in all of India where they could be purchased, and there was just one other customer while I was there. We travelled with those government maps for the rest of our journey, and everyone we showed them to was astounded by their excellence. Even police officers and forest rangers. 
It took only two days for the sense of excitement of being able to do whatever I liked to wear off. I could have stayed longer, but once I had Ajahn Suchito's visa for Nepal, I decided to follow him. Not, though, without first going to the antique shop to buy that Cambodian Buddha Rupa as a present for him. He deserved it, and maybe we couldn't really afford it, but we'd just have to be even poorer. Then I was rumbling west on the train to Gaia. I'd started to miss him, and it would be good to meet up again. <laughs> 